Hi, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations. We are now going to uh, talk with Delphio Marsalis for the part two of the interview that we started and aired um, last week. Um, we are uh, going a little bit beyond the, the conversation we were having about um, Ellis Marsalis and his um, influence on his students, his family, the city. And now I really wanted to talk with you, Delphio, about what's happening now on two levels. Um, kind of in general, um, how the music scene in a very broad, uh, broadly stated way is shaping up pre-COVID. And then let's talk about how you view um, this crisis that we're in, health crisis right now, and, and um, how it's affecting us and how we're it's obviously very damaging for individuals, um, and yet has maybe some possibilities that would um, be important for us. Tell me about, um, you chose to stay in New Orleans. You, you've got at least one, I don't know where Bradford is these days, but you have at least one brother who's um, chose to uh, head off to Yankee land, and he's up there in New York. Um, why did you choose to stay, and how do you feel about how the music scene has been shaping up here? Well, you know, initially I came back to New Orleans, New Orleans chasing a girl. And that, of course, that was, everybody does. Girl and boy. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I couldn't, at the, at the time, I didn't find a place in New York City that I liked uh, hmm. and could afford. So I said, well, I'm going to come back home for a little while. And then I got down here and I'm like, man, this is the place. This is the place right. to be. And a lot has happened since then. You know, we're talking the early 90s. Yeah. But, uh, you know, New Orleans is a survival city. And that's why I say, like, jazz is a survival music. There's a reason why it was birthed in New Orleans. And we become, the city becomes what it needs to be. Uh, I would say if we learned any lesson from Hurricane Katrina, my main concern moving forward will be to, when I say preserve certain New Orleans traditions and New Orleans music, I don't mean that I feel the obligation to only play, you know, music of the 1930s or 40s. But it's right. important for us to safeguard the music from folks who are coming from other places and they just want a, a gig and are not in tune with the, the righteousness of the traditions of New Orleans. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's um, something that I think about a lot because we have had this infusion of, um, of creatives of all discipline in the city since Katrina, partially because I think it took Katrina to tell the story of the contemporary um, art uh, of the city, as opposed to, I think, a sort of frozen image of the city from the beginning of, of jazz. So a lot of people still thought about the city as a Dixieland or early jazz a city. And then um, Katrina said, oh wait, maybe you didn't know, but there's a lot going on there that was well beyond that. And that attracted a lot of people. And they came here um, at a time when I think some of the other cities around the country were um, having some major issues uh, in, a, in, a, in a different ways. And so it's been both an, an infusion of ideas and uh, talent but it has also been a challenge 
So I'm interested to hear you say that you view that challenge as something that really has to be addressed as such a challenge. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think people, the majority of people come to New Orleans and it's a, a vacation destination. And it could be, you know, Disney World South. It's like something, let's just go to New Orleans. I don't know that they're coming here. It hasn't been my experience that people come here primarily for the contemporary or the, the more modern jazz. They come and they want to experience the old school and they want to have a party. So kind of the brass band tradition is something that I think is important. And the fact that there's a funeral. And what I'm thinking about now, when my dad, when we do lay him to rest in New Orleans style, is how do we actually safeguard and preserve the tradition of what that is supposed to represent? Not everybody's like, oh yeah, second line funeral. Man, let's, let's, let's have a party. But the reality is, you know, that tradition comes out of Africa. And the design is that it's a way for the community to come together and to assist the family in the grieving process. It's not so much just, man, let's get out in the streets and party. Now, it has become that, and I'm okay with that aspect, but also, this is an example of what I'm saying. It's more important for us to first keep what it was supposed to be. You know, the family unit, and then the extended family, and the extended family outward. Where many times, if you go to a, a jazz funeral, there's not that respect. It's just everybody's in. It's like everybody is part of the family. So, and again, it's not that you're not part of the family, but it, it grows out, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Um, so the only thing I would do is distinguish between uh, people who come here for the Disneyland South and that you mentioned as visitors, and the people who came here um, immediately following Katrina, kind of with an initial instinct to help a city that was important to the whole country. Um, and then um, stayed, those who stayed, uh, because uh, they, they began to see how they could be a part of that culture and wanted to be here and to uh, uh, develop their work. So one of the uh, events my organization, um, we did a thing called the Meeting of the Courts, but it wasn't Rex and Comus. It was Amy Dolls and the um, Men of Labor and other um, marching groups with some of these new um, uh, Chewbacca's and uh, Teat Rex, these, uh, the newer organizations. It was kind of, let, let, let's talk to each other and see you know, how, um, how this, these new folks influencing the community. Um, but you're concerned about you know, making sure that that legacy in the music stays alive. How do you do that? Well, you know, to, to use a cliche, you know, I'm sympathetic to the plight of, of Jewish people on the whole. And I can be respectful of that with the understanding that, you know, I'll never really be on the inside of that. I can assist, I can help out, I can provide commentary, but with that understanding, and it's okay with me, just as if it's, you know, women's rights or whatever situations are. And at the same time, I think it was great. We had many people who came to New Orleans and they helped out after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, really, they just came. I remember the first time I got back to the city, 
and I was meeting Branford here. And the short version of the story was I was in Houston. This was probably three, three, two or three days after the, the storm hit. I think did the storm hit on a Monday. So the Sunday night, Monday, yeah. Yeah, so this would have been Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday. At any rate, I meet him at some somewhere in Mississippi. Might, must have been Jackson, and we drive, and it's like, huh? Mm-hmm. That's where I went. Yeah, so I, I met met. It landed in Jackson, and we're driving. We're driving through. Uh, it's midnight, one one a.m. And man, there were fire trucks in and ambulances from places that I hadn't even heard of. It was written on the side of the truck. These really small remote places and everybody was coming. It was really kind of eerie because it was really, really quiet and everybody was headed to New Orleans to help out. I think that was a great time and that was a great thing. Uh, And the people who decided to stay, I think it's great also, but you know, you just have to be respectful of the New Orleans people and much like I use the other examples and just understand that. Uh, for me, the main thing is that we, the musicians, if what we feel is important to preserve, we have to make it a concentrated effort. Like just for example, the, the, the second line funeral, where there's a traditional way that it was done, where you play certain songs and that pays respect, not only to the family, but to the deceased yeah. and you're honoring that person. And then after a certain period of time, then you go into the second line. Gradually, you go into the celebratory type of posture. And that's the idea that you're celebrating this person's spirit is going on to a better place. You know, now sometimes the second line parade is just, you go straight into the party aspect. Mm-hmm. So it's important, you know, for me at this point to get together with people like Pearl and Riley and Dr. Michael White and talk about, man, what are these elements that are really important that we need to make sure that these youngsters know? Because it's more important for them to know the proper way. Now, if they still decide they're going to do it their own way, we have to respect that. Folks, you know, they're showing up at second lines with, with jeans and T-shirts on and baseball caps. So, again, I'm not opposed to, to the, the contemporary model for certain things but we also should be respectful of the more of what you would consider the traditional models. I, I, I get it. I understand. Um, in general, uh, New Orleans has evolved original music forms um, cyclically throughout history, uh, particularly I don't know enough about the really earlier history, but certainly from um, mid-19th century through today, um, we've morphed a whole lot of music forms. It wasn't, again, just um, early jazz. It was uh, uh, rhythm and blues. I'm not going to get into the argument of where rhythm and blues originated and where all these things originated, but we've evolved. It was here, so it's okay. You don't need to argue. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> um, funk and bounce and sissy bounce and mm-hmm. um, all these different um, forms of popular or other kinds of music. Uh, not to mention uh, the classical music of people like Gottschalk. I mean, um, we've we've just we're originators. We don't 
we're not derivative. We don't copy from elsewhere, really. Um, and I'm sure today, of course, uh, you can argue um, uh, hip hop and, and uh, bounce are um, evolved rap at, at some point in, in history. But mm-hmm. how, how do you account for that originality? And where do you see that originality going today? Where do I see that originality? that is so much a thread in all of our music throughout um, the decades. And how do you see it going forward? Yeah, you know, again, for the most part, it started with the Africans, but being in America, the true African-Americans, because you don't find that type of of, uh, improvisation and originality as much so in the African culture. I think that the, the Africans in America that's been like the longest improvisation and negotiation of any group of people ever in history. It's an ongoing negotiation. And along with that comes the idea of something new. And it may be as simple as, you know, the people who were, were cooking and they got what was left of the pig and they came up with pigtail and pig lip and chitlins. And it's this idea of, figuring out what to do and just having ingenuity. Uh, Now that said, uh, the great thing about New Orleans is all cultures are important. So in the earlier days, yeah, it was, you had people of French descent and German descent and you had everybody. hmm? Irish and Mexican. Irish, yeah, you had everybody coming together. And the the great thing about the African-American is that everyone can have their place in something. It's less exclusivity, it's more inclusivity. So it's like, okay, we're getting together on something. You know, that's why I named the CD with my dad, The Last Southern Gentleman. Man, that comes straight up out of that African tradition. The idea of, for example, the musicians are playing for the audience. We want the audience to have a good, a good time. It's not just about self-indulgence. So what was the question? <laughs> you're you're on it. It's it's um uh training the ingenuity uh, and originality right. in New Orleans music. Okay, oh and yeah, yeah. Why and where is it going? Moving forward. Well, and the, the thing that you have to understand about jazz is that it has the the most extensive. Uh, I guess we'd say it, it has a concentration most extensively of different elements than the other musics that you mentioned, like. There's very important elements in R&B, the groove. But from a harmonic standpoint of view, it will not have, as a generality, the sophistication of some of the jazz. The rhythms that are in jazz are really wide and expanded. What you find with bounce and rap and R&B, from a rhythmic standpoint of view, it's funky and it's nice, but there's not as wide of a range of rhythmic variety. Which is, I'm not necessarily trying to compare it like this is better or this is, I'm just saying that's just the reality of it. You know, in jazz, man, you can have anything from the Louis Armstrong sound to the swing sound to the go-go sound. I mean, there's so many different things that can fall under that umbrella. But now I'm just saying that to say that what I'm hoping is that the bounce musicians or the, the DJs are, that they come back to jazz to include more elements that are going to give them their music a richness. Because we're talking about Stevie Wonder or Michael Jackson or Prince. Or, these are people who were heavily influenced by jazz. And this would give their music a certain kind of a sophistication and 
a richness to the harmonies and things that they're trying out. So I, I, my vibe is that we have to know as much as we can about the different styles and figure out how we can blend them in. in. How do you feel about some of the people who seem to have, um, what's the word, in a sense sampled, but in, in, a, in a, a more broadly implied definition, music from New Orleans into their music and it's been important to them. A guy like Drake. Drake mm -hmm. You're right. pulls New Orleans influences into well, his work. Everybody does that. I mean, my preference would be that he actually hired a band and that they were able to use those influences. But I, you know, it's just, again, that's, that's my preference as a musician is to have actual musicians and there's an ingenuity in things that, that are required. But, you know, man, Whatever way you get to it, I think is fine. So if, if he's crediting the New Orleans musicians and if this somehow, there's the whole thing, you know, a lot of times people say, well, man, I got into jazz because of, you know, I heard a rap group and they were sampling jazz. Okay, if that actually happens, cool. You know, I'm, I'm cool with that. I think that the more important thing, uh, if you're sampling someone's music, is to try to give them as much credit as possible. Okay. A better thing would be to hire musicians and say, man, you know, damn, I dig this sound, and how do we recreate, like how can we use that to give our music a freshness? And that's what we're trying to do. As jazz musicians, and I always tell the, the students, man, your responsibility is to know what the youngsters are doing, to know what this trap jazz is, to know what bounce is, and figure out what of these elements can you use in your music, not just kind of look down on them, oh man, we playing jazz, all of that's foolishness. I think that's the easiest way to get around having a certain kind of a social obligation in your music. Social obligation in the music. So actually that leads me to the COVID situation. So, you know, uh, we're having a lot of conversations amongst those of us who were uh, on the kind of organizational side of the art uh, world in, in New Orleans right now about um, how to deal with on the one hand the uh, damaged individuals lives and family lives uh, from loss of work um to look at the health issues of course and and and, and i'm i'm going to be talking in my newsletters about how covet is revealing certain things that we kind of knew were there but we're not focused on such as um, the health disadvantages of the black community that are revealed through the higher death rate from COVID that is happening in the black community right now. But mm. um, I, I, it's re things are being revealed. Um, we're thinking about and talking about the social obligations of the moment. Um, how, and this is in, in all art forms, not just in music. How, mm -hmm. how do you um, view what's, what's happening with COVID uh, and um, uh, the responsibility of, of people in the arts and, and how we're going to um, address this situation and, and, and where we're going to come out from it? Well, you know, the first part of that, as far as the disadvantage of the black community, I mean, are we still pretending that black folks haven't always gotten a shaft? Like, is that, you know what I mean? As, as a generality, it's like, it's like when Hurricane hit, I was in, in Houston and, uh, you know, they, they showed the folks, the guys was on the, the TV like, man, we need help. And it was really looking desperate. And it's interesting in the gym, because there were some folks that were like, oh my God, I can't believe this is going on in America. 
And I'm like, if you were familiar with any black community, like what else could it have been? Like, there's always this, there's always, so what, you know, that notwithstanding, I mean, you know, man, the brothers and sisters are used to, again, they, they're, they're gonna get the short end of that stick. So that's what is understood. And when we were talking earlier about my dad, a lot of his preparation with us was just know that historically your people always are going to get the short end of the stick. So just mm-hmm. have that understanding as you move forward. Now, as far as what you're saying, as far as the artists, you know, the, the artists, again, we figure out how to make things happen. We figure out how to survive. And uh, I'm at the point now where I'm not taking for granted that the kids that I teach know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar was, or that they actually know the works of Langston Hughes, or many other artists who are very important, as I said, in this long negotiation. So each person, you know, Danny Barker took it upon himself in the 60s and the 70s to teach that generation of musicians traditional New Orleans music, because he felt that it was important for them to learn it correctly. So I would say each of us as artists who feel an obligation, we can't just take for granted. Can't take for granted. Well, they don't learn this in school. So my thing is really coming up with a plan of things that and ideas that I feel are important and making sure that the students have access to that. That's for sure what my parents did with us. They had an idea of these are things that are important. These are things from the first half of the century, 1900s that are important or before that. These are things from the second part of the, you know, it's always you want to know about the history and then today what's going on. Delphio, tell me about what you're doing and tell me about um, your initiative that you've been working on now for what? It's at least a decade, right? And I, don't music. Mean, I don't mean the music that you're generating yourself, but uh, the, the things that you're doing with uh, young folks. Oh, yeah, that's been 20 years, 20 years. Okay. And it started off, this was before American Idol and The Voice, and it was before YouTube and Facebook. So we started off just giving students an opportunity to receive uh, dramatic arts education on a high level. And that's been the, the, mainly what we focus on. But we also have had a soft introduction to jazz for youngsters called Swinging with the Cool School. Uh, at this particular moment, uh, we have a group of musical theater kids who are functioning on a very high level. What I'm realizing, because these kids are mostly what I would say are privileged, they're privileged kids. Or you might say middle class, I don't, whatever the terminology we want to use, they have access to information and their parents are very involved in what they're doing. But what I'm realizing now is more, it's more important for these kids to uh, introduce what they do to other kids who don't have that opportunity, then it's, it's more important for that to happen than for me to go in and talk to, to kids. So now what I'm trying to figure out is how can I get my kids to go to the KIPP charter schools, or these different places. And man, the response that they had was from the kids was so tremendous. And I think that's that peer mentoring and peer pressure, that's when it's at its greatest when the youngsters, because they see me and they say, I'm playing jazz and I'm telling them this and that. Oh, and they say, oh yeah, okay, cool, whatever. If they see and hear someone that's their age singing Charlie Parker, and it's like, man, you know, there's a, a, a cleverness to Charlie Parker. 
and there's a, a bounce and there's a, a, celebrate, a celebratory sound. So for now, I really want my Uptown Music Theater kids to not only do the musical theater thing, but also to embrace things that are more, uh, I guess I would say really represent their ancestors and their culture. If it's Paul Lawrence Dunbar or if it's Charlie Parker, in addition to doing The Lion King or Aladdin or whatever these musical theater works are that they're doing. Uh, to what extent do uh, you get them involved in uh, actual composition and um, uh, um, creating new uh, music? No, can't do it all. So that's not our focus. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's high that level. Come from them working on the music that they are learning. Right. How to. We, we have a couple of students, uh, one student in particular, and she had her own band when she was 12. So, Whoa. oh yeah, Who's we that? encourage. Hmm? Who's that? Who's that? Her name is Reagan Peters Roussel. Uh -huh. But she's been in the program since she was six or seven. Wow. But I met her. She may have even had a band then when she was eight. I don't, I think she might be 16 now. Uh, oh. But we have other students too, uh, mm -hmm. through the years. Uh, Sydney, ah, oh, man, these names are not, but there was a young lady named Sydney and she had written a number of plays and a number of short stories. So we encourage that creativity, but it's just, we don't have the, the bandwidth or the amount of hours with the kids to cover everything. So, right. you know, my, my vibe with them is, man, know as much about, cause you know, a lot of times the, the, the struggle that, that black folk have, the struggle we have with our history is that, you know, you, you read the slave narratives or something that's told in the old dialects and it's, it's almost borderline an embarrassment. Like, man, these people, they didn't know the language or they didn't speak. It's, it's difficult sometimes to understand what they're saying. But my, I'm telling these kids, my position is that know this information from a position of strength. Know it from a position that your ancestors had the most stringent job as negotiators, not only for their lives, but to keep things that were important to them. I mean, that, that's such an incredible negotiation, man. It's like, man, you know, really, like on a real level. Uh, so uh, to me, it's important. Uh, W.B. Du Bois said the talented 10th, and the idea was that the 10% of the black community that have education and have access to information have an obligation to the other 90%. I'm, his, his position may have been a little more well, 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 would that that, would that, that um, basic uh, paradigm were true in uh, the, our thinking in America today about society in general, not just in the black community, but, you know, altogether, would that the 1% had a little bit better appreciation of the importance of investing in the 90% so that we were a more unified nation? Actually, I, I, I'm, I'm probably t totally a utopian optimist in thinking that maybe out of this COVID experience, because this thing has, as they say, no borders, no recognition of one over the other. Um, it's, it's totally random uh, in its impact. Maybe we might move the needle on this horrible partisan divide. Uh, my husband takes to calling this the second civil war, or actually, the continuation of the Civil War that never really yeah, ended. Exactly. That's, boy, that's beautiful. 
Because Branford always said, you know, man, I'm realizing now that some of these folks in the South still think that the Confederates could pull this thing off. <laughs> uh, exactly. That, uh, the, 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 this, this, <laughs> they still these, think, man, it ain't over guys, yet. <laughs> some of these guys are really, that's, that's still what they're into. They are into, um, you know, the dominance, uh, um, uh, basically, uh, white supremacy. Uh, there is no doubt about it. You look at it, you remember what was going on with the law. Tad calls it the lost cause. It's still going. It's still, it's still, uh, right. a, and um, you got a guy like Trump who believes in nothing. I always uh, cringe when people say, oh, the president thinks. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, no, the president doesn't think that. He just says that because that's the way he locks in People who unfortunately, and I attribute a lot of this to the poor education that so many people have had. Um, yes, there is just plain cold old time racism out there, but there's also um, a very difficult era that we're going through economically where, you know, we're in an economic revolution. You were in an industrial revolution some years ago. Now we're in a technical revolution and people are not acknowledging that we have to adjust to it and make sure people um, have a place. And if they don't have a plan, they're going to make a place all right in your lives and you ain't, ain't going to like it. So right. I'm, I'm very concerned about, um, you know, really trying to understand um, what, what some of the um, really corrupt, there's just no other word for it, cynical corrupt leaders in this country are doing in re that old thinking um, of getting and keeping power. It's as simple as that. And uh, Trump is the, at the top of that aisle of, of terrible stuff. So, um, however, again, coming out of this, where you see us coming out of this particular moment with this, with this terrible uh, pandemic, um, is there going to be a value in it? Or, or, you know, again, when we came out of Katrina, of course, we thought they changed permanently. They didn't. We, you know, fell back on. Um, how do you see? How do you see? What are the possibilities? What are you hoping for? Where's your optimism? Well, the, the first thing is this is the first time in history where the entire world or the majority of the world has had to come together and work together for something like this. I mean, that's the first part. Uh, but there is always strength. So like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So for those of us who uh, will be stronger, I, I would imagine, hopefully physically, but more importantly, mentally, in our understanding of what's really important out here. And that's, that's you know, it, it is tough with the leadership that we have right now. Uh, when George Bush was in office and the decision was made to go fight these wars in Afghanistan and in uh, Iraq, there was the belief that uh, there was no concern for the, it was unnecessary. So all these years later, the thousands of lives that had been lost from that, it, it's kind of a, still there was the feeling that this was more of a political move being made that was not necessary. When we look at this pandemic, man, in America, the fact that we could have been in front of it, were it not for the fact that the pandemic task force was abolished for no apparent reason. You know, it's just, if we're gonna spend money on something instead of military and, you know, 
these various uh, bailouts of bigger companies. That should be at the top of the, the list. But I'm just saying all that to say that, yes, we can look back at this and say, man, so much of this can be avoided, could have been avoided. And yes, you know, I believe that my father, for example, was taken before his time. I don't know if it was two months, three months, six months, two years, but many people that we're losing, we could have avoided this. So hopefully in our approach in the future, you know, we, we have more of a love and respect for all humanity and try to do things that are actually going to help everyone. But we have to get to the understanding that the, the real democracy, that everyone benefits. I can't tell you how much um, talking with you has been um, a reverberation of your dad for me. Um, that was another thing about him, in addition to um, his honesty and toughness, he also had a very broad vision, and talking to him was always a learning experience, as has this conversation with you been, um, Delphio. I so much appreciate your thinking and um, the conversation we've had. And um, this was part two, but I'm looking forward now to part threes, fours, and fives, and sure I'm gonna, we're gonna talk some more. Um, and anytime you have something going on and, and you want to call attention to it, you, you give me a yes, call. And uh, we'll talk about whatever it is you want to talk about, and then we'll talk about everything. <laughs> okay, that's a deal. <laughs> Um, thank you so, so much for giving us the time. And um, yeah, I like seeing your um, shelves of books and I have a feeling you've read a lot of them. <laughs> They're not yeah, just props. CDs are over here, so I got to reorganize just to get to those. Okay. All right, well, catch you later. You. Ethan Elstad has been um, really concerned about and trying to help musicians in the city. I think he got kicked off, but he'll tell us by um, the problems that musicians were having in, in, in performing live in the streets. Uh, but it grew from there. And now with um, the COVID situation, he's really kicked in with some new programs. So I'm going to um, ask him, first of all, to um, tell us just a little bit about his organization. It's called MACNO. And um, I don't know how many years you've been at it now, but it seems like a few. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the last month or two, it's, it's felt like another couple years in its own. Exactly. Um, That's what everybody's saying, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, we are MACNO, the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. Um, I'm the executive director of, of MACNO. Um, we've been around since 2012, so we are in our eighth year now. Um, we, we actually got our start um, in in the run up to the Super Bowl, which would have been the early 2013. There was a um, a crackdown on live music permits, um, and so there were a number of music venues that all of a sudden would have been hosting music for you know years, decades that maybe weren't in total compliance or didn't, didn't have everything quite up to date. And they, um, in one fell swoop, decided to um, enforce these. Um, you know, these permits that had not been enforced for a long time. So a lot of places found themselves from hosting live music five days a week to zero days a week. And then a number of musicians lost their entirety of their income. Um, and so there were a number of meetings that were held about that crisis. Um, 
And, and you know, I think the first one was held at Kermit Ruffin's um, bar back when he had one on Basin Street, and a number of people came up. And then we just sort of grew up out of that space. Um, and then one of the first things that we did end up and have been sort of one of the hallmarks of our work has been working with um, street performers um, and other folks in the culture community that find themselves not represented well, um, you know, throughout through, through the legal framework or not having a lot of um, assistance to fall back on. So certainly we've done a lot of work around performers on Royal Street who are constantly facing challenges there, you know, um, brass bands having challenges on Frenchmen, you know, still venues that are having permitting trouble. And so, you know, we, we were well known for, for uh, advocacy on the Noah's Ordinance some years ago. So I always talk about, you know, it's the way that kind of culture policy and social justice intertwine, which often is sort of, the most difficult to see part of, of culture because be, you're a musician, you don't necessarily know or have to know much about the zoning ordinance, but it does impact where you can play. Um, and so I always say that we, we work sometimes at the least sexy part of New Orleans culture, right? Like the ordinances and um, behind the scenes kind of stuff often. But of course the results are very sexy. I mean, that's, that's uh, the hope. The performances in the street are one of the defining characteristics of our culture. And I think that's also why you've, you've taken it so seriously. I mean, um, it's hard to have a conversation about almost anything in New Orleans that doesn't lead to a statement about how important the culture of our city is to who we are and what our opportunities economically and, and, and culturally uh, are going forward in the future. So I, I, I totally um, recognize the importance of what you do. Um, you. So... Yeah. Um, and of course, of late, uh, we have a whole different situation. And um, it's actually an interesting question that I, I, I wasn't thinking of asking ahead of time because I really just want to hear about the programs that you have uh, launched to try to help musicians and um, artists. But um, I, I, in a way, you would think that performances in the street right now are uh, you know, the, one of the... Um, least problematic performances in terms of the is issue of social distancing. So if your musicians are moving through the, the, through the streets um, and not, you know, huddled in one place with the crowd around them, um, theoretically, if that uh, process is um, respected, uh, they could continue to perform. I, I assume this is something you've been addressing. Yeah, I think it's, it's it, uh, I think we can move forward, um, you know, as this situation sort of unfolds, I think it'll be interesting to see how we can sort of really work around that. You know, I think the challenge is there's nobody in the French Quarter to play to really right now. I think there's no visitors, um, which is a big component of that. But, you know, I think, you know, as we look at festivals potentially being canceled in the fall, what does it look like if there are smaller performances? And I would say that street performers... Exactly. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about, uh, generally speaking, in the hospitality universe is the importance of um, spreading out uh, our visitors from the French Quarter, from uh, right. both uh, Bourbon and from Frenchman Street, out into the area. So why can't we organize, and, and I asked Don Marshall the same question yesterday, and I've, it's been on my mind in a different context. I'm very interested in trying to support, you know, neighborhood health. And so why can't these performances happen in, in, in neighborhoods and in the parks? I mean, we have one of the, one of the, one of the 
aspects of our city that doesn't get a lot of attention and I'm, I'm trying to do some work on also um, are our gardens and parks. Right. We're a very green city and most people don't think of us this way because they think of the architecture and the food and the music, but there's also green. Yep. So why not play in the parks? Yeah, and I would say street performers are actually some of the best musicians at crowd control. So if you want to enforce social distancing policy, street performers have to deal with crowd control almost all the time. So they would be a natural fit um, for, for some of that as we think yeah. through. There's an opportunity in there. That's something we can talk about going forward. Let's let's hear about your programs. I think um, I really want to make sure that musicians are aware of their of what you're trying to do. Yeah, so the, you know, there's there's two things that, that we've really been working on. Um, you know, there's been a lot of funds that have popped up over the past month, all you know, with various um, requirements, and they'll, they'll sort of pop up and accept you know applications, and then they'll stop for a while and they'll pop up. And we know that the need is overwhelming for um, for the cultural community here. Um, and so there's two things we've been working on. One is an uh, a coalition we work with called Culture Aid NOLA, which has been doing no barrier uh, food distribution throughout, um, right now largely on St. Claude, but going to expand to other parts of the city, hopefully Gentilly and Central City, and is doing um, sort of drive-through food pantries uh, a couple of times a week. And it's a partnership with um, the Musicians Clinic, um, the Crew of Fools, which is a, a street performer Mardi Gras crew that's been instrumental in, in getting things started. Um, um, no Gees involved, No Hunger Nola, um, and uh, I think Hospitality Net as well. And it just is, you know, working with folks, getting distributions going, and just, you know, it's it's focused on the cultural community, but it's not uh, exclusive to it. So anybody that shows up will get food. Um, you know, and there's a number of these type of sites. The other thing that we're really trying to do is a value add of giving out information to access some of these other funds or, um, you know, if you need mental health services or whatever. So part of that is, you know, giving out the musicians clinic flyers and making sure that people have access to additional assistance. You know, people need to eat, but we know there's a lot of, of needs beyond that. And, and culture had really sprung up just from, you know, us talking amongst one another and saying like, we have an opportunity to do this, so let's just do it and see how we can make it as as easy as and convenient as possible. Um, and so that's that's ongoing, and we're hoping um, you know to scale it up a little bit with with partners. And also, unfortunately, it seems like this is going to be a need that's going to be ongoing for a while for the culture community and, and service industry and beyond. And so, what does it look like two or three months from now uh, when this need continues? Um, so that's one thing we've been working on. It's, it's um, the the question of the length of time of the needs um, is, is is so open ended uh, partially because nobody really knows you know how long uh, the 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 really intense part of this um, social distancing and staying home uh, thing is going to go on. But then there's still going to be need after that because um, the recovery is not going to go snap your finger and we're okay. It's going to be a slow process. So. Um, yeah. Um, to, but to cap that uh, uh, phase of our conversation, just uh, tell musicians exactly <clears throat> what they need to do to access that program. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a, a food distribution that happens now a couple times a week at Holy Angels on um, on St. Claude. There's also um, just Culture Aid NOLA, the website you can pop on and just and get information on food distributions. There's also on other social media um, 
Facebook is Culture Aid NOLA, and you can just look it up and get information on where the upcoming food distributions are. And then, okay. you know, we are also on social media, uh, Music and Culture Coalition. We are at Music Culture 504 on Twitter, Matt No Page. I got a little slower so people can catch it. Uh, music Culture 504. Yep, at Music Culture 504 on Twitter and uh, Matt No Page on Facebook. And we'll keep posting about that as well. Um, and Matt has two C's, everybody. Yep, M A C C N O. Thank you. Um, so that's, that's one of the programs we're doing that has the most um, sort of immediate impact. And then the, the second piece that we're, that we're going to be launching, you know, I think by the time this airs, maybe the, the following week is, um, this is going to air this Friday. This Friday. So, yeah, so yes. Uh, Just so you know. Yeah. yeah You're on the same show with Delphio Marsalis <clears throat> and, um, uh, another, uh, organization that's out there trying to help make things yeah. happen. And, and so what, what we're doing is, you know, and we talked about we talked about all these other funds and knowing that no matter what happens, you know, there just there's always going to be a need. But also, some some people have a have challenges accessing some of these funds because of restrictions. Often, you have to live in Orleans Parish. A lot of you know gigging musicians and others may not live in Orleans Parish, but gig here. Um, you often have to be online to do the applications, um, or maybe you just don't quite fit into the into the parameters of the applications. And so what we're doing is trying to do, we're doing a, a small grant program via referral. Uh, these, are, these are mini grants, $250, um, that are open to members of the cultural community and defined loosely because we know that in New Orleans, culture doesn't always fit a, a strong definition and many people are involved in different ways. And so you have people like street performers who are, you know, great musicians, but often not in a formal structure that often can't access aid. So people like street musicians, um, maybe vendors, folks that are involved in the culture, but maybe not in a, in a way you can say, Oh, I play, you know, the tuba in this band, but rather, you know, I'm a part of the second line community and I, you know, I do this, I hold the ropes, I'm a vendor, et cetera. And so how do we make sure that we can get aid to, to those folks and, and particularly to elders, we're really focusing on, in this process, people 70 and over that may have otherwise not been able to access assistance. So elders within the cultural community that have a very important role that may be struggling to get, uh, to get aid. We're going to be having a small open call and that'll be again posted on our website, um, which is maccno.com. When it's open, we'll also have it on our social media. But what's I think unique about our program is we're also really working a lot on referrals because we know that the culture community here really works on word of mouth and everyone knows somebody who knows somebody who probably needs some help. And so how do we get to the back of that chain and say, all right, um, let's get in touch with this person and make sure that they have access to this and we can work with them directly. That's incredible. And so, um, how long do you have enough? How long will your money last with that program? And I, I assume that you're in the business of trying to find other funding. So maybe Correct. also in our audience, we have a very diverse audience. Maybe there's somebody out there who would like to help you. So yeah, that's donations. great. So yeah. Right now we've got, uh, we've got about uh, $200, $250 mini grants we're going to give out in the initial round. And then we're going to um, be looking for funding to expand it out. Um, and again, 
you know, it's open. We're going to also be working to distribute money, you know, via cash app, via PayPal, um, if we need to buy check, but how do we also get that fund transfer as quickly as possible, you know, in a no touch way so that the turnaround will be quick. The intake process will be largely over the phone. So if you call us and reach out, we will give you a call back and take the intake process and get the information to make sure that you qualify. And then the final piece again is how can we work with folks that to make sure they have, they have get in touch with additional services because if you haven't been able to access some of these funds, there may be a reason like you didn't, you didn't know about tax information. You had, to, you had to work your taxes out. We can, we can point people in the direction to get assistance with that. Or um, maybe you need someone to just sit and type the information in on the online form because you don't have internet access. Um, so how do we also eliminate some of those barriers? Because $250 is, is important. It's groceries, it's bills, but it's certainly not enough. So we know that people are going to need access to additional services so that we're working in that component as well. So, so that's something that I, it may have been you or uh, maybe uh, it was Gene Maneri at the Ella Project who's also mm -hmm. going to be on the show or someone else who was talking about the fact that um, uh, people who didn't have uh, internet, um, Wi-Fi at home have been going to the public library, which is closed. Right. So what, what are the options for folks to access um, internet is that something that somebody you or somebody else is working on trying to figure out how to get more access distributed around the city? I mean, I think so. I think that's probably a little bit out of, of what we can accomplish, but I think it's it's one of the pieces that I think is important as we move forward, not just us, but collectively as I guess for lack of a term, cultural serving organizations is to find these gaps of service and and sort of pressure the city or other actors to be able to step up. And, and do some of this stuff, you know, we see on the ground where the gaps are. And so we need to work together with people that can fill those gaps. You know, I know the Ella project and Gene actually were people we talked to and have been stepping up to provide some folks with some, some tax assistance. Right. Yeah. Um, and that I, was I, and right now they're working on um, helping people get access to all these um, uh, funding programs that yep. are, come down the pipe that are complicated. I can't even follow all and of them. So, there's so many and they pop up and pop down. <laughs> they pop up and they pop down and um, they require form filling and form filling is something that um, I don't care what your educational background is, is um, hard to buckle down and do. So uh, I'm concerned about people being able to really access what's there for them, much less what's not there. So, um, uh, uh, I'm going to want to check back in with you um, uh, very soon on, on uh, as you go forward with this and with other things that we're going to run out of time shortly. So let me just ask you uh, to highlight um, a way that musicians uh, and, and other, as you said, vendors and people who are part of the cultural landscape out there, especially in the streets, what's your fundamental recommendation to people for how to get through all of this? And then there's so much uh, that talk now about the psychological impact. And I saw a story just recently about uh, those who have had the virus, the recovery is much more complicated and lingering than a lot of people are talking about. So um, folks are going through both physical and psychological issues as they come out of the virus and, and not to mention family and other people around them. So, um, you know, do, are, do you have a sense of, of how to have people think about the situation and an approach finding the help they need? 
I mean, I think the, the first thing to say is, is don't be afraid to ask for help because there's so many people that, that need help, but also so many people that want to help. I think it's the, you know, that's one thing that, that it's, I think seeing people really rising and they want to help um, each other. They want to help the community. And, and, you know, in New Orleans, particularly people want to figure out a way to, to help musicians in the culture community um, and are willing to do what it needs to take. There's so many GoFundMes that have popped up and, you know, people distributing food and giving out five meals, 10 meals um, and, and, you know, reach out, I, th I think is, is one thing. And, you know, people want to reach out to us. The easiest way is, is if you have access to email, our, our email is mailings at maccno.com. You can email us. And if you contact us, we will point you where, where we can to get assistance and you can remain anonymous. That's why email works so well. We won't give your information unless you want to. We're happy to connect you with however it would. Um, and if you don't want to reach out to us, reach out to someone because there is a community here in New Orleans that is linked and people are helping each other. That's how we get through these things. And I think have in the past and will in the future is through helping each other, you know, to make sure that, that we get through it, the culture gets through it, the city gets through it. Um, that's where the strength is. About, um, maybe in a better place. And we always hope that these crises will lead to, um, they, it certainly has re revealed this crisis, this particular crisis has revealed things that many people knew, but were not paying attention to, you know, such as the higher level of um, <clears throat> health issues that have led to higher death rates <clears throat> in the minority communities. And also, connection i don't know if you caught this either but this is very important the connection between pollution and death yeah. rates did you yeah. see that 15 yeah. percent higher death rates in areas that have high pollution and um i think that that plus some of the work that's just coming around now uh, in the state uh, dealing with um the pollution from the petrochemical industry this is mm -hmm. going to be another factor that will lace in with uh, what we're trying to do uh, for the cultural community that turn out to be very interesting because we need to have people respect the creative industries and, and culture as an important part of our economic future. That's We're right. out of time. I'm sorry. No <laughs> I want to add that. And um, I look forward to talking with you further. And uh, don't forget to send me something that we can put on our newsletter. And uh, for those of you who don't get the newsletter, I really wish you would literally just call 218-4807 and ask to be put on the mailing list because there's a lot of the kind of information that Ethan has been talking about winds up in our newsletters too. And then that's something you can hold on to. Ethan, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we will talk soon. This has been Crosstown Conversations. This is Jean Nathan on WBOK, what people are talking about.